News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I'd say there's a lot of waiting and kind of cautiously watching and observing the real estate market in light of what we've seen happening with interest rates. This week, we had another blow to interest rates when the Bank of Canada increased it once again to have their benchmark rate at 4.5%. Now, that was quite a bit. It's the highest it's now been since 2007. And that means that homeowners who have variable rate mortgages, and those can fluctuate, have really seen their payment and their rate increase substantially over the past year. You are maxed out, undoubtedly. And you know what? Take a look at what's happening in the real estate market. I don't know what your neighborhood, but from what I've seen, and I keep checking and I look all over Metro Vancouver, I see very few listings on the market and prices that are still in a bit of a stubborn spot there where clearly homeowners feel like they need to get X amount of dollars out. And they're probably not getting a lot of activity on those listings right now either. Let's talk about what realtors see happening in the market right now. Faith Wilson is with us, President and CEO of Faith Wilson and Christie's International Real Estate. Faith, thank you very much for being here. Oh, hi, Simi. Thank you for having me. Now, you've been a realtor for, what, 30 years or so. What do you see happening in the market right now? Uh, well, I think, uh, first of all, this interest rate, uh, this last interest rate hike, um, even though it's a hike, I think it gives people a bit of sort of certainty as to what the playing field is now. Um, and again, we can never dictate what interest rates will do, but, you know, they've come out and said that this will be the last one for a while. So I, I think that's a bit of positivity, and I think that gives uh, the, the public, um, you know, as I said, some confidence and some certainty. Uh, but what I what I am seeing now, first of all, we're in we're in a new year, um, and everybody's kind of waiting waiting to see generally how things are going to play out. Um, my sense, uh, you know, there's activity there for sure. Buyers are out there. There's lots of lots of interest at the open houses, and um, there have been sales. I think the sales are down about twenty percent from year over year so far for this year. But I think that will pick up. Um, as we go forward into spring. But what is it taking to sell a a listing these days? Like how have things changed from a year ago or two years ago? Uh, Well, sellers do have to, you know, sharpen their pencils too and and really look at market data to figure out where their property should be and they should be listening to their realtor when it comes to that Uh, because we do, you know, we're the experts, of course. So sellers need to also get real. In what way? So what are you telling a potential client? Like how much, how much off the price from two years ago are things right now? Around 10%. It's not huge. And, it, you know, again, Simi, you know, when we're looking at data, first of all, when you're reading in the paper and you're reading what's going on, you know, we're talking about sometimes Canada, we're talking about the lower mainland. So uh, depending on product type, depending on uh, area and then neighborhood and micro neighborhood, you need to look at what's going on there. So I could say, oh, it's 10%, but it could be different in Port Moody or it could be different on the Vancouver West side for townhomes, for example, in Kitsilano. So you really have to bear down on that. That would just be an average. Yes. What is selling out there? Uh, Townhomes for sure are popular. Um, There's... uh, There's energy in the luxury market right now, a lot of energy in the luxury market. 
so that's um, I think you'll see some some sales coming off in that segment of, of the market. Uh, condos are selling. First time buyers are still getting into the market. Really, condos are mm-hmm. selling out there. So you talked about townhouses. There just doesn't seem to be enough townhouses out there. So is demand pretty good for those? So that's the other part of the equation when we talk about, you know, moderating price points, um, supply and demand. And right now we're still off from last year, year over year on our supply. Uh, So that's part of the equation for sure. And I think we'll see more properties coming on the market as we get sort of probably into the latter part of February. And that may change things a bit too. Right now there's not a lot of supply. Right. So are people, do you think, holding off? Like, obviously, people want to sell their homes. Are they waiting? Um, right now, I would say that there you'll see product coming on. So people are just getting, their, you know, sellers are getting their ducks in a row, advice of their realtors, when's the best time to put their property on the market. Uh, so I think you will see that coming on. I think they're just waiting for the right time. And now with this Siberian weather system coming in, you know, it's reasonable to assume people will wait to see what happens with that. And, you know, when you get into the latter part of or mid or latter part of February, you'll start to see um, active listings coming on and that will, the active listing will increase. Right. Faith, you were mentioning that, you know, when potential sellers are meeting with real estate agents that, you know, they should listen to their agents. What, what are sellers expecting? Is there still kind of a gap in terms of the reality of the market and what sellers want to sell their house for? <laughs> There's always a gap. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, when I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but, you know, is there a gap if a seller wants a certain price and and they're not going to attain that in the market and the realtor still agrees to put the property on the market at a, at a price that's not, you know, in sort of the slipstream, then you're going to have a fair amount of properties that are overpriced. Simple as that. Right. But so, right now, though, it feels like there's a, probably a different reality. Like you, people want to sell what their neighbor sold for a year ago. I don't uh, I don't know if that's so so much the truth anymore. I mean, it's easy to look at data and figure out that this these are the homes that have sold in the last six months or the last three months. So it's great that you want to have this, your property sold for what your neighbor sold a year ago, but it's not realistic anymore. Well, what neighborhood would you say, like looking out Metro Vancouver, is still selling well that people are it's hot out there? That's a good question. Um, I would say Kits a lot because we're in Kits, so I can talk very uh, just you know, think me about that. Townhomes and kits uh, are moving. Fairview is moving. Um, I think New West is still uh, a pretty good market. Uh, we'll see how things play out as we get into the, the spring market. We will see. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Faith, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, we heard about progress that is being made on the Broadway subway line, right? That the the boring machine uh, has actually broken through to the Mount Pleasant station. So they're very excited about that. But what I don't think they want to talk about is the fact that it looks like that for now and for the foreseeable future, that line is going to end at Arbutus. Well, what happened to the UBC SkyTrain extension? It's been talked about for years now. But we found out from the Mayor's Council meeting yesterday on transportation that it's further down on the priority list uh, than we saw in years past. And some Vancouver councillors are not happy about that. And joining us now to talk about this is Christine Boyle, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. 
Thanks so much for having me on. Were you surprised to see that it, the UBC extension had kind of moved down the priority list? I, I was really surprised to see it. The UBC extension is a really important project, not just for Vancouver, but for the entire region. It's important for meeting our climate and transfer uh, transportation goals. It's important for the hundreds of thousands of people who go to UBC every day um, uh, and are, are taking that route. Um, TransLink estimates that 500,000 people are passed by on B-lines each year because the buses are too full. And I, I don't think I have to tell you, it's it just is absurd to stop the line at Arbutus and have thousands of uh, commuters be getting out and transferring to a bus at that intersection every every hour and every day. So uh, I think it's an incredibly important project, but it's not just what I think the, the ridership numbers show, that it will be one of the busiest uh, routes in the whole region. Um, and, and half of the commuters will come from outside of Vancouver. Like I said, it's a regional project, and we need a champion for it. We we need Mayor Sim and others in the region uh, to recognize that it's important to move forward without delays and, and champion it at the Mayor's Council at TransLink and also with senior levels of government. Right. It's, it's on the list still, it seems like. So this TransLink report to the Mayor's Council says it would only happen, but first they want the North Shore Rapid Transit to happen. And then after that, they want a, a kind of traffic-separated bus rapid transit option that would move people from the North Shore to, to Metrotown and back and forth. And then they talk about the UBC extension. What, what do you think about that list? I think UBC needs to be higher up. And, and I also really recognize uh, the importance of that North Shore line. I, I see that traffic from East Van all of the time. Um, it, uh the North Shore needs improved rapid transit and the leadership on the North Shore from from leaders there, uh, from Minister Ma and others has been really important in getting that idea moving forward. So I'm excited about that as well. Absolutely. Uh, and the ridership numbers for UBCX uh, are so strong. Um, they really speak for themselves in terms of the number of people who will be on it from day one. And uh, those numbers should be informing the investment decisions, not just sort of regional uh, uh, competitions over who gets more service. It, ultimately, Simi, the challenge is that we need all of these projects, uh, the region for for transportation and climate reasons needs a massive expansion of public transportation. Um, and some of that means having champions go to senior levels of government who we need to step up on this front uh, and help get these projects across the line. And that's what we need better leadership from in Vancouver to get the UBC extension done. What do you think has happened here, though? Because there seemed to be so much momentum for this project. UBC was talking about it. You know, Vancouver was talking about it. We had uh, support from the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations because they wanted this as well for their development project. So what happened? I think that's why you've seen such a surprised reaction from people to see UBCX get bumped down the line because uh, everything is lined up. The the case speaks for itself in terms of the need for it um, and 
the connection to the Jericho lands and the um, support from Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil is incredibly important. Reconciliation is one of TransLink's uh, key goals, and, and this line helps on that front, too. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm not sure um, what to say in terms of what happened. It was surprising. And again, you know, we, we had strong leadership on this front. Um, a, a lot of advocacy council, last council, supported it strongly. Uh, so I, I'm not sure what's happened. I hope it just uh, is, a, is a bit of a mistake and that, um, and that our, our Vancouver mayor, the Kensim, can go back to the mayor's council table and champion it like we need um, because it's not going to get built. If that's not the case, then... Uh, and we badly need it. So do you, do you feel that's what it's going to take is for the mayor to champion this or, or what else is going to needs to happen here? Yeah, I think it's really in all of the above. I hoped that we would hear from more Vancouver councillors on this. I think all of us need to be um, working together collaboratively. Uh, you know, it, it will benefit residents all over Vancouver as well as the region. And so all of Vancouver championing it will matter uh, as well as provincial support and leadership. I know we've had uh, support for the project from a number of MLAs. There's a really clear recognition about uh, the number of people it will move and, and how important it is. So having the province step up and say, this is a project that we'll commit to, uh, and the feds as well. And what would be most impactful, I think, is if senior governments could say, this is a project that's needed and we support it, we're going to come to the table and talk about the dollars needed and not uh, not have it compete with the importance of the North Shore line and elsewhere. You know, we can't have a zero-sum game where one part of the region wins and another loses. All of these are needed. And so having that senior government support for UBCX would make a huge difference along with um, stronger champions at the Vancouver Council table. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for covering it. This is Mornings with Simi. Surrey residents, how frustrated are you when it comes to talking about and dealing with your policing situation? Not only is there no quick answer to all this uncertainty, there doesn't seem to be an answer, period, about who's going to be in charge, who's going to be, you know, conducting the policing in Surrey in the next couple of years. So what we found out yesterday is that Public Safety Minister and Solicitor General Mike Farnworth said the province needs more information to try to decide whether or not they should let Surrey Council proceed with dismantling the Surrey Police Service and returning to the RCMP or whether they should be forced to keep the Surrey Police Service. That just means more uncertainty, right? And some people are not happy about that. Joining us now is Anita Haberman, who's the President and CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. Is there a level of frustration in the community, do you think, Anita? So frustrating. Uh, we have been dealing with this uh, absolute disaster of a mess for the past uh, four years. And the business community, uh, as you know, bears the burden of taxation. We are uh, waiting with bated breath what our property tax bill is going to be. But there's no City of Surrey budget now uh, that's going to be released as a result of the indecision on the policing future of Surrey. What would the business community like to see? 
Well, I think, number one, the business community wants to see public safety infrastructure that they can rely on. And uh, our position has been to keep the RCMP in Surrey, but to ensure that both the B.C. government and the federal government are investing in infrastructure uh, in Surrey, wraparound supports for youth, mental health supports, uh, those that are facing um, addiction, um, all of those types of services where Surrey and the South Fraser Economic Region has been left behind. It's not about uh, the, the type of uniform that you wear. It is about those holistic wraparound supports, which include judicial accountability to ensure prolific offenders are not always on the streets. I know that one what Surrey residents have wanted for the last 10 years is to have more officers in their community. Uh, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, our population continues to grow by 1,200 to 1,400 people a month. That is going to continue. And uh, we have had no additional officers on the ground, no investment uh, as it relates to our growing population. So absolutely, um, you know, that is our ongoing ask within our, our city budget consultations with the city of Surrey. Are businesses worried about the potential property tax repercussions of this? Yes. And, you know, many of our businesses in the past two years have faced an unprecedented property tax increase as high as 150% each year. And in these economic, uh, in, in this economic climate that we're living in, this uncertainty, uh, businesses can't survive uh, in the face of that uncertainty, and especially as it relates to ongoing increasing property tax bills. What did you think about what uh, the minister Mike Farnworth had to say yesterday, though, saying that they don't, they still don't have the right numbers or the right information? Well, I find that intriguing because uh, when they received the report in the first place from the city of Surrey to move away from the RCMP to the Surrey Police Service, they didn't have an independent auditor to actually articulate to the public in a transparent way what the costs will be. A decision was quickly made because the minister said, well, it's up to the city of Surrey who polices their city. And uh, there was no independent audit of what the costs will be. And all of a sudden, uh, we're being asked, uh, you know, for more information. What that information is, the public doesn't know. What the timeline will be, we don't know. Are you concerned, though, that given that, that maybe maybe the cost is much higher than, you know, people might be, like, people don't know what the cost is. But do you think this hesitancy comes from the fact that, boy, these costs are going to be substantive? I think it's going to be substantive uh, either way to reverse course and even to move forward will be even more of a cost because you are actually starting a brand new business with significant overhead and capital costs. Um, And so uh, that's why, you know, one of the reasons uh, that we are supportive of keeping the RCMP in Surrey is uh, those overhead costs are already taken care of. But then we can focus on those wraparound infrastructure supports that we need uh, to ensure uh, public safety uh, for both residents and for businesses. 
What is it like right now, though, for businesses? Like, what are you hearing in terms of right now you've got some RCMP officers and some Surrey Police Service officers? How's that working? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, businesses are really focused on, you know, selling their products, selling their service. They're trying to survive each and every day. We're a small and medium-sized business community. Um, if they do face uh, issues, uh, you know, they phone the RCMP uh, number, whether it's the non-emergency line or 911, and whoever comes, they just want to be helped in a very expedient way. And um, and so, you know, really, it's just business as usual, but the RCMP is the front-facing uh, role of assistance to businesses when issues are faced. Has the mayor reached out to the business community at all on this topic? She has. And uh, I've spoken to her, in fact, uh, on Monday about this. And uh, and certainly, you know, she is very cognizant that businesses are facing rising costs, uh, that they are exhausted in terms of increased taxes, uh, not only from the city of Surrey, but from all levels of government. Uh, so she wants a decision to be made very quickly. And uh, we need economic investments within our city. We need infrastructure. We're going to be the largest city in British Columbia, but we don't have the infrastructure that we need to be that large city. And the Surrey's uh, policing future, uh, the uncertainty related to it, uh, is causing that economic uncertainty for businesses. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. The state of forestry and the industry here in BC has been a hot topic recently. We keep hearing about mill closures. And while the provincial government has announced some support measures, critics say it isn't enough. And after all that comes news of another change, this time Canfor. Company says it is restructuring its operations in BC. They're going to permanently close one sawmill. They're closing another for an extended period. And they plan to build a new wood manufacturing facility. So these that's huge impacts for some towns, right? The sawmill in Houston uh, is going to close temporarily as they plan to build this new building. But this is all a lot of changes for places like Chetwind and Houston and other places that are so reliant and have been traditionally on the forestry industry. So we thought, let's talk a little bit more about this. Joining us now is Thomas Martin, a registered professional forester. Thomas, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Thomas, so is the forestry industry undergoing like a type of transformation here in the province? What is happening? Yeah, it is. And it's been a trend that's been happening over the last 20 years. So I think it's important to talk about what's led up to these events and how it's just part of this, uh, the trend that's happening over the last 20 years. Okay, so what led up to this? So first we had in the early 2000s, most local sawmills used to be tied to the local timber supply. That ended, and a lot of mills were closed, like bought out by other companies or consolidations happening. And so that resulted in um, significant job losses. I think we went from about 90,000 job loss, uh, 90,000 to 95,000 jobs to about 60,000 jobs in a short period of time. And then the second thing that happened was the mountain pine wheel epidemic. And that, uh, we lost a lot of lodgepole pine to the mountain pine beetle. And our management decision at the time was to increase harvest levels in the short term to uh, salvage that wood before it rotted in the woods. And then the third thing that happened was in 2009, we had a recession. And that, uh, a lot of companies trimmed down, they leaned down, 
And so that brings us to where we are today. We were originally harvesting about 74 million cubic meters in the early 90s, and now we're harvesting 55 million cubic meters, but with about half the number of jobs. The forestry companies say they don't have enough access to product to, so that they can use to turn into, you know, pulp paper or whatever the case may be. Do you see that happening out there? That is definitely happening. And that's a result of primarily of this mountain pine beetle epidemic where we increase harvesting the short term. But now our midterm timber supply is going to be much lower than it was historically. You know, we're, we're moving into the 50,000 cubic meters a year, uh, 55 million cubic meters where before we're about 70 million cubic meters a year. But that is really, it's centralized in the, it's localized in the central interior where the pine beetle occurred. Okay, so then that just seems like it's a matter of waiting for this to, to for the forest, for the, for the product to come back up. Yeah, and unfortunately, by the time, from the time you plant a tree, the time it's ready to harvest, it takes about 40 to 80 years. So forestry operates in a long timeline. Um, and there's been a really, there's been some good analysts uh, analysis from forestry analysts uh, who forecasted this uh, this shrinking of our land base or shrinking of our timber harvest and closure of mills. So one industry analyst, Jim Gervin, back in 2019, he forecast that seven to eight mills would close over the next decade and worst case, 13. And then with the old growth program coming in, that could be another five more mills closing for the interior. And so far, his predictions have been spot on. So we'll likely see a couple more mill closures in the coming years. So what about the supports and the provincial government has offered? Is there a way to turn this around? What do you think they should do? The, the strategy that the government's trying right now is short-term supports, um, and those are always welcome. And it's very difficult for families and workers when you lose your job in short-term notice like that, especially when you're you know, established in a local community. Uh, what the government sounds like they intend to do is trying to maximize the the amount of saw logs, the amount of um, products that we can get out of our limited timber supply. Okay, how do we do that? That is a very difficult question. I think if there was an easy answer, we would have implemented it by now. One thing that we talk about in the industry, uh, but it hasn't really happened, is changing our tenure system. Uh, and that is the tenures are the licenses that companies have uh, for the right to harvest logs from the public land base. Okay, but there's no sign. It seems to me that it's moving more towards, um, you know, like a, a more community-based model of, of forestry, wouldn't you say? That is one uh, one trend that's happened. We've seen more community forests be established over the last 20 years and more uh, First Nations-owned tenure over the last 20 years. And when you have uh, more smaller companies operating in one area, that gives workers and communities more choice because if, you know, if one company goes down, you still have four others operating in the area. And as well, there's a bit more competition for labor, so wages will increase. Now, every time we talk about forestry, Thomas, I get questions from people about raw log exports. And people say, oh, we shouldn't be exporting raw logs. We should be processing those here. How much of that is still going on? I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe it was a about 10% of our total uh, production was raw log exports. But I, like I said, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. And a lot of those raw logs do come from the coast, where it's the high-value timber that can be exported to um, international markets that are willing to pay more than local markets.
has that been steady throughout the years, do you think, or are we doing less? There's always been, I feel like, people who, are, who, who don't like the idea that that's happening. It is a very unpopular thing. Roglog exports are very unpopular. Um, and I know it has increased in the last 20 years, but I don't know by how much. Okay, so what do we need to do here, Thomas? Like when you look at all, you, know, you see all the criticisms and everything coming from all sides here, what needs to happen, do you think, to, to ensure the health of our, our forestry industry? We need to look at what we can get out of our forestry land base and then how can we process that fiber that's coming out. So right now I work in wildfire management. We do a lot of work around communities and trying to do what are called fuel treatments. You remove the smaller trees that are the fire hazard and leave behind the bigger veteran trees. So in my work, we look at, okay, we have all these really small trees coming out. How can we process them? And right now there's not a lot of facilities set up to process them. So that's one strategy we could take is a more intentional look at how can we harvest and manage these smaller trees that are fire risk and leaving behind um, a lot more big veteran trees. Do you see a willingness to try to do that? I see willingness. Um, there hasn't been a big shift in this province in the way we do forestry. There's been a lot of uh, short-term supports and short-term funding programs, but there hasn't been a big change in how we manage our forests and how the, these timber tenures are allocated. Hmm. So is the desire there in the industry to make these changes, do you think? I know talking to a lot of the loggers, um, they really like uh, wildfire projects because they are protecting their communities, they're protecting their families, um, and at the same time we can get some of these logs out which normally wouldn't be harvested otherwise. Well, thanks very much for this. I learned a lot today. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. 